I'm sure all of us have had the experience of watching someone that we care about deeply go through a time of, of struggle and pain in their own lives. Maybe it was a child who struggles with a particular subject in school and you watched your child prepare for an exam diligently. You helped your child prepare for that exam and worked with them the night before. And then you watched your child come home and comforted and consoled your child because they failed the test, despite what you knew of their best efforts. And if they went through that, you felt that agony along with your child. Maybe it was watching your child go through a particularly devastating breakup. Maybe it was seeing someone fired from a job. Maybe it was watching a friend lose their spouse, their spouse in death. We've all gone through these kinds of situations with someone that, that we care about deeply. The, the situations are, are endless, but what is common through all of them is that the pain of the other person becomes our real pain as well. The emotional agony becomes ours. Well, on the flip side, though, we also have the experience of joy, don't we? Sharing in the joy that someone else experiences. Our child scores the winning goal in a soccer game, and we share the excitement. Yesterday, I saw someone posting pictures on Facebook of their first child having their, their wedding day. All weekend, it seemed like the parents had as much joy as, as the child who was actually experiencing the wedding personally. They were filled with joy because they shared in the great joy of their child. We, we understand sharing in sorrows and sharing in joys because that's real life. It, it happens as we go through the, the rhythms of life. We, we experience these things. We probably also understand that our culture warns us against extending ourselves too far when it comes to sharing with others because of the toll it will take upon us. We're admonished by our culture to, to take care of ourselves be, because no one else will. We are to protect ourselves emotionally. We are to, to look out for number one. So what should we do? Should, should we wall ourselves off from other people? Should, should we limit the emotional risk to our immediate family? Or maybe we, we let a select few through the, the barriers that we create. What should we do? Well, this morning we'll see that God has an answer to that question. God has instructed us regarding our relationships with others, and he's placed this instruction into a context of showing genuine Christian love. We're continuing our series on that topic this morning. Love, genuine love, Christian love, <clears throat> that's the thing that the Savior said sets us apart from the unsaved world. John thirteen thirty five. by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is that defining element of our Christian witness to the world. It's what makes us unique. We've been looking at that now for several months. We've been using the list that Paul gives of characteristics in Romans 12 to, to guide our study on the topic. Paul lists in that, that passage what God considers to be genuine love. We've been taking the list item by item, going down through that list 
understanding what Paul says is required for us to have genuine love, and then evaluating ourselves, looking at our lives, examining ourselves, evaluating our love and verifying, is our love genuine, or do we need to make adjustments? Turn with me once more to Romans 12. Paul begins his lift in, in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's how far we've gotten in our study so far. We looked at verse 14 last week. So far, as we've gone through this list, nothing has been easy. Every item we looked at has required the, the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to produce the, the elements that we see in this list to the level that Paul says we need to have them. Uh, of course, that's what makes it Christian love. It's Christian love because the Holy Spirit is the one producing it, not ourselves. As we move into the next verse here this morning, nothing changes as, as far as that supernatural aspect goes. It remains the same. Paul writes in verse 15 of Romans 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. On the surface, that, that doesn't seem that hard to understand. Yet, as we dig into it this morning, as we dig in, I think we will find that the challenge comes in doing. Once more, not in understanding. These are rather simple ideas when we just lay them out as far as what they understand, but the challenge comes in doing it. In fact, I think we'll find that what we're instructed by God to do in this very short verse is extremely countercultural to the world we live in. You see, the principle that, that we're going to develop this morning, the principle that comes out of this verse, is the idea that genuine love requires emotional engagement with others. It requires emotional engagement with others. Emotional engagement. That, that's the way I'm referring to sharing in both sorrows and joys. Genuine love requires emotional engagement with other people. Our, our verse naturally breaks itself into two sections this morning, so we'll just follow that pattern as we try to think through this principle. As we try to think, think through what does it mean to be emotionally engaged with other people. The, the first thing, then, that we will think about is that genuine love requires that we share in people's joy. It requires that we share in people's joy. If you were here last week when we went into verse 14 in that verse, you may remember that I mentioned that Paul changed his style. It, it gets lost somewhat in our English translations, but up till verse 14, Paul's been using ing type of words. They end in ing, rejoicing, persevering, contributing, some of those kinds of words to, to make his point. Those verbs had the, the force of imperatives, they had the force of commands, but the form was different. That changed last week. In verse 14, Paul switched direct to direct imperatives. 
direct commands. Well, today Paul again switches. He, he throws in another type of verb, a, a different type from before, and, and when he gives us the, the words for rejoice and weep. Again, these forms still carry the, the force of an imperative. They're still commands, but they're written differently. And, and the question that raises is, does that clue us into the type of relationship that Paul is thinking about when he gives his instruction to us this morning? Last week I mentioned that, that the forms which could indicate that Paul was expanding the scope of relationships from what we were to have with one another as believers to our relationship with unbelievers. Well, by the same standard, some commentators argue that Paul is flipping back to relationships within the church as he switches forms again. We're to rejoice and weep with other believers, but, but unbelievers, that's outside the scope of, of the instruction. Well, I'm not convinced. As I look through it, I'm not convinced. Through the rest of the list in this chapter, Paul seems to, to just kind of flip back and forth to things that would be between believers, with unbelievers. He's not carefully delineating the types of relationships. Instead, he's telling us, you are a believer. This characteristic should be part of your life. Some of the items apply to one type of relationship, some to another, and some to both, to believers and unbelievers. And frankly, I'm not even convinced last week that when we're told to bless those who persecute us, they wouldn't be thinking of possibly believers too, because, you know, we're still in a sin-filled church. And sometimes sin pops up in the church, and believers can be just as much prone to persecute us when it comes to infighting and sinful behaviors as unbelievers. We're not free anywhere we go. But we are told how we are to behave as believers. The bottom line, as we look at our instruction today, let's not restrict our thinking to the people sitting around us here this morning. Yes, we, we should rejoice when we see the people in this church rejoicing in, in a little bit. We should weep when we see the people weeping in, the, in this church. But we should also rejoice with our neighbors, our family members, our, our friends, our co-workers, those who do not know Christ as Savior. We should rejoice alongside them as well. So what does it mean to rejoice? Rejoice with those who rejoice. We already looked at the word that Paul used for rejoice when we considered the, the first phrase of, of verse 12 when he wrote rejoicing in hope. Paul uses the, the same word again here in our verse, rejoice with those who rejoice. It, it, it's a common word. Most of the time it's a word that just describes a feeling of joy, a feeling of thankfulness. Frequently, the word is also used as a greeting in, in the, the Greek and Roman world of the day. James 1.1, for example, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Well, literally, it's rejoice. It's the same word. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, rejoice. People in that day greeted each other with an admonition to, to be filled with joy today. Rejoice. Certainly, as Christians, we are to be joy-filled people. After all, if we're truly saved, we have ultimate reasons for joy. Last Sunday evening, we looked at the great white throne judgment in, in Revelation chapter 20. We, we saw those who will stand in judgment before the Lord when he returns. And as a result of that judgment, they will spend all eternity 
condemned to the lake of fire. They'll be there because they rebelled against a righteous, holy, creator God. Furthermore, they are individuals who have the audacity to reject the Son of God who died on their behalf. The Son of God who God the Father graciously sent to provide a means to escape their destiny. Well, we too rebelled against our Creator God. We too deserve eternal damnation. But God sent His Son to die for us. The the only thing that separates us from those at the great white throne judgment is that God worked within our lives so that we responded to the gospel message. The only thing that separates us is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is ours through God's grace by faith. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were happy sinners, God ensured that we would hear the gospel message. While we were rebellious sinners, God drew us to himself through the gospel message. While we were broken sinners, God forgave us because of the gospel message. And now, we are redeemed sinners. Redeemed, being transformed by God to be like Christ. Folks, we have ultimate reasons for joy. Assuming that we know Jesus Christ as Savior, of course. If you don't know Him, if you don't have these ultimate reasons in your life, talk to me after the service. Send me an email. They just flashed my email address on the screen. I'd love to share with you the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We have ultimate reasons for rejoicing. Rejoicing in the hope that is ours is something that shouldn't describe us. But that was verse 12. Jesus being ours is not the focus of our admonition this morning. When we come to verse 15, rather than being joy-filled because of what we have, we are to be joy-filled because of what others have. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. Look at the verse again. I want you to notice something. And it's a little hard to notice it because it's what's not there. I want you to observe what is not in the verse. There is no mention anywhere in this verse when I look at it, there's no mention of what is going on in your life at the moment. Rejoice with those who rejoice if you're having a good day. I don't read that there. Do you? Is in your version? It's not in mine. If it's in your version, your version's wrong. There's no conditional clause that, that says you rejoice when someone else is rejoicing if you happen to feel like rejoicing. There's no conditional clause that says you rejoice as long as that person is a special friend to you, someone you care about deeply. Paul simply says, word rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to share with the joys of others, period. 
That's it. Chris Ostom, a, a very early church leader in the fourth century, he, he suggested that Paul may have placed this admonition to rejoice first because of the two admonitions in this verse, this is the more difficult one. It's harder to rejoice when we don't feel like rejoicing than it is to weep when we don't feel like weeping. I remember myself sitting in a group of people one time when it was announced that, that someone else had just been given the job that I thought I would receive. The person was happy to have the job. Others in the group were happy that the person had the job. But I can't say that I was happy that that person had the job. It wasn't that the person did not deserve the job or was a poor choice for the job. It was simply that I wanted the job myself. There are times when rejoicing with those who rejoice is not natural. Remember the list we're working through. This list is a list of supernatural behaviors. These are characteristics of believers who are are filled by the Holy Spirit. There is nothing in this list that is natural. If the joy comes naturally, then it is not the joy we're talking about here. This is supernatural. These are traits that show the world our Savior. They attract the world's attention because they're the work of God in our lives rather than our natural responses. One component of genuine love, one component of Christian love, is that we will rejoice with those who are rejoicing simply because they are rejoicing. Regardless of what's going on in our own lives, regardless of our connection, we rejoice because they are rejoicing. We rejoice because we choose to put others first so that Christ is magnified course i'm not talking about feigned joy here we don't pretend to be happy this is not an attempt to to put on a happy face grin and bear it this is sincere joy we have joy because god has chosen to bless someone else and we share in the emotional response to god's blessing in that person's life we share their joy genuine love requires emotional engagement with others. That's the principle this morning. That, that principle means that, uh, number one, we, we rejoice with others. We share in people's joy. Our principle, though, also means, number two, that we will share in their sorrow. Genuine love requires us to share in people's sorrow. Most English versions translates Paul's admonition as as weep as the, with those who weep, the, the second part of the verse. The NIV translators is one exception. They, they translate it as mourn with those who mourn. The, the word that Paul uses literally means to cry. That's why weep is, is a good translation, the, the most prevalent. It, it, it's a word that describes wailing and, and shedding of tears because of, of great sorrow. Every time we see this word used in the New Testament, it has that kind of idea. It's a word that describes, for example, the, the end of, of life's experiences at the far end of the spectrum, different from those who are rejoicing. This is the far other end. Great sorrow. We've all lived in this sinker's world long enough. 
with all of its brokenness, that we know these times come. We know. A child doesn't gain too many years of life before her ice cream scoop falls off her cone into the dirt. And instinctively, she wails over that tragedy. Over the years, as years pass, that the initial heartbreak is superseded by, by many more significant ones. There, there will be hope for gifts that never materialize. There, there will be broken promises that, that cause the, the lamenting. There, there will be pets that perish. Morals will increase, but the instinctive response never disappears. We know life is filled with times of sorrow. We can hope that while the child experiences these personal sorrows growing up, that, that the child will also have a parent that will be displaying the principles of this verse, that they, the child will have a parent that weeps when they weep, that laments when they lament. That will allow the child to grow up understanding Paul's admonition, weep with those who weep. Yet whether we grow up with that example in our lives or not, Paul's admonition is here for us. We are to weep with those who weep. As believers, this is directed to us. We're to share in the sorrows that fall into lives of those around us. Once more, though, Paul fails to include any of those conditional clauses that, that we would want that, that would put a box around this so that, that this admonition would be limited to the people that we share close relationships with. We, we don't find it hard to grieve alongside our family and closest friends, do we? When, when our families, members, or our closest friends have a, a great tragedy in their life, we ache on their behalf. We're emotionally connected, and it's instinctively our response. But what about people who are outside that box? In, in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six, Paul writes, When one member suffers, we all suffer. There, Paul is suggesting the, the family-like structure of the church, the, the family-like nature of, of what makes up the church should cause us to, to feel family-like pain when anyone within the church suffers. Well, like I said, we understand family-like pain, don't we? We, we get that, but if, if something happens to my wife or if something happens to my children, if something happens to their spouses, to my grandchildren, I can use the plural now, that's pretty great, if something happens to my family, I hurt. Last weekend, David, Katie, Finley, and the baby, they were in a, a car accident that thankfully was a relatively minor car accident, but was on Katie's side of the car. I was not relaxed until Katie and her baby were carefully examined at the hospital and we had the all is fine pronouncement. We understand, don't we? Sorrowing with those who sorrow. That's a natural response that, that, that we have to our family. Yet, you know, as soon as a church is larger than, say, maybe 20 people or so, as soon as it grows just a little bit, there's no way we can have this close family natural feeling toward all the people in the church because we cannot know everyone the same. We, we simply cannot know everyone as well as we know a few people. 
In a church this size, there are people that we just don't know as well as we know others. Some of the people in this church will necessarily be outside a box that we would draw, draw around ourselves of our family and closest friends. Yet all the people in this church are in the box that Paul has drawn. These are people that when they suffer, we are to share their suffering in, in our lives. When God brings suffering into to their lives, we feel it. When we hear about Christians in other places, though, their box has to keep getting bigger because Paul doesn't seem to limit the box to even the people in this church. So when we hear about Christians in Ukraine or in China being persecuted and the sorrow that brings, we should feel the emotional pain. When we hear about churches sorrowing because they lack a pastor, we should sorrow. When we hear about our difficult neighbor sorrowing because he has lost his job, we should sorrow. We probably do not have a hard time understanding this idea. But how are we doing? Are we sharing in people's sorrows even when they are not close to us? Remember, doing that is an element of genuine love. Doing that is supernatural. Doing that shows the reality of Christ in our lives. It's evidence of his transforming grace. I know there is a lot of evidence of sharing in people's sorrows within this church. I often hear about members visiting other members when times of crisis arise. When, when people are in the hospital, many step up to encourage them. When, when someone loses a loved one to death, members pour into the funeral home to provide encouragement. We, we do much. But are we doing what Paul says makes up genuine love? Are we openly sharing in the sorrows of other people overall? Genuine love requires us to share in people's sorrows. As I said at the outset of almost every sermon in this series, our goal is not only to understand the characteristics of genuine love, our goal is to examine ourselves and validate that we have that evidence within us. Genuine love is showing forth from us. Well, genuine love requires that we share in people's joy and it requires that we share in people's sorrow. Remember our main principle. Genuine love requires emotional engagement with others. Emotional engagement. Both joy and sorrow have emotional components. We, we, we cannot share either of these if we're not emotionally engaged with other people. We need to understand their emotions and we need to expand our own emotions on the engagement. That's where I fear we may be falling down in meeting the goals that Paul has set before us. Let me ask you, have you constructed an emotional wall around yourself? A wall that keeps most people from getting too close to you. I'm sure you have. To some extent, we all have. We, we use it as a defensive strategy in this sin-filled world that we live in. We, we put this wall around us. And the world we live in tells us that, that we need to build this wall big and strong. We should only let a few very select people in. 
We, we need to protect ourselves from rejection. We need to protect ourselves from ridicule, from disappointment, from vulnerability, from all of the kinds of painful things that sin brings into our lives. We live in a sin-broken world, and, and we know the risks of being emotionally vulnerable, don't we? Other people will hurt us if we let them get too close. At the same time, we, we probably also understand that everyone else has an emotional wall of some kind around them, too. The reality is that when there's two walls standing together, there's not a whole lot of emotional interaction going on. When there's two walls standing between us and other people, only the very largest joys and sorrows will peek up over the top. We, we won't be able to see most of what really matters to people. Well, breaking down the walls between ourselves and others, that, that's not an easy task. It, it means getting vulnerable. It, it means taking risks. It, it means experiencing heartache and pain. It, it means letting people see the messiness of our lives so that we'll earn the, the, the privilege of seeing the messiness of their lives too. There, there's nothing natural about seeking out emotional engagement with others. It's hard often unrewarding work, filled with, with real pain. Much of the time, our efforts will even be one-sided. As, as we seek to engage with other people, we'll be the ones making all the effort. We'll share in their joys, we'll share in their sorrows, but they will not reciprocate in return. So let me say it again. There is nothing natural about this idea. There's nothing natural about the idea of emotional engagement with others who are not naturally close to us. Yet, I don't see Paul calling us to do what is natural. Paul is calling us to do what displays genuine love, the, the kind of love that, that calls others to our Savior, that magnifies Him and His work. That is supernatural. An old Lutheran commentator observed last century, and it's an interesting thing happens when we share people's joys and sorrows. He observed that when we share their joy, joy doubles. We now have two people joy-filled. Yet he also observed when we, pair, when we share people's sorrows, the sorrows halved because we each bear part of it. Sharing in the joys and sorrows of people to the level that Paul lays out is a component of genuine love, a component that, that's going to require intentional effort on our part. It, it means remembering those who are shut in and, and taking the time to call them during the week and visit them. It might mean noticing those who are absent from our, our service for a couple of weeks and, and reaching out to them with a text message. It might mean... Arranging lunch with a person or family who sits way on the other side of the auditorium. We wave to them, but it might mean doing more than that. It might mean creating opportunities to show kindness to the crotchety neighbor next door. The one that blows his leaves onto your lawn every fall. It might mean inviting a coworker over for a meal to meet your family. It might mean reading updates on what's happening to churches on the other side of the world. It, it might mean a whole host of things, and it will mean different things to different ones of us. 
We cannot all do everything. In fact, none of us can do everything. The one thing that it will mean, though, for all of us to intentionally expand emotional effort is that we must all work to engage with others. It will mean that we do the work because genuine love requires it. We strive for genuine love because genuine love allows us to share our Savior with the world by showing the love that He has created within us. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Genuine love requires emotional engagement with others. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would continue to do the work within us that we need. Father, in some of our cases, we, we may need you to send your spirit for a work of conviction at this time because we have failed to love as we ought. We have failed to open ourselves to, to share in the lives of others so that we share in their joys and their sorrows because we have become extremely self-focused caring only of ourselves. And Father, if that's the case, I pray that you would forgive us as you convict us. Fathers, for others, maybe we need to be encouraged that we're already working in the right direction even if there's no evidence that our engagement with others is paying any immediate dividend. May we be encouraged that faithfulness alone is all that we're striving for. Father, I do pray that you would allow us to continue to share in the lives of others so that we can share Christ. The reason for the hope that lies within us, the reason for the joy that we have, the reason that we do that which is unnatural. Father, whatever we need from your Spirit today, I pray that you would send your Spirit among us now and do a work within us so that we would be spirit-filled men and women who are emotionally engaging with those you have placed around us for the cause of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.